Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Well, good morning, everyone. Apparently, um, the people who usually sit on this side of the room decided to take a, uh, a corporate vacation together. Uh, so I apologize for anyone on this side of the room. Um, thanks so much for being here. My name is Russell. I'm one of the pastors. Um, if you're joining us for the first time, as Nathan said, we are a new community of faith that believes no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. And those aren't just words for us. We actively try to embody that. We actively try to put steps and, and, and um, move forward in that vein. And so we're just really happy you're here with us. We are jumping back into a series. We took a break from it last week, but we're jumping back into a series that we've been doing called The Paradigm. Uh, the Paradigm is an examination on the book of Exodus, uh, which is the second book um, in the Hebrew Bible, Genesis and then Exodus. And the reason why we're calling it the paradigm is, is because it's our contention that this is the meta-narrative. This is uh, the book of Exodus, the story it tells, in a sense, is the one story. And that any people from any time in any place um, can look into the story and find their own story, can make sense of their own lives, can make sense of their own worlds. And uh, so we took a break last week to talk about tables, which tables, if you were here, you already know if you weren't here, uh, we have a video online. Tables are our form of small groups. They're gonna be launching back this fall as well. So if you're interested about making friends, which is pretty much all of us, who doesn't want friends? Come on. Um, come talk to me about what tables are, about what uh, you might be able to do to start one or to uh, gather a group of people to help host one. It's super like easy commitment because I know commitment scares all of us, right? Where most, a lot of us are millennials where as soon as we have to sign something or commit to something like, oh, oh, way too fast, way too fast. So we're gonna make it easy on you, all right? We're gonna bait and switch. You're gonna commit without knowing you're committing. It's gonna be great. Um, but yes, come talk to me about tables. And then also September 10th, as Nathan said, um, Fall's a great time when people are looking for community. They're looking to get involved. They're looking for friends. New rhythms are starting. Uh, old rhythms are starting back up. So September 10th is gonna be, we're gonna have a couple special things that we're rolling out um, to sort of set it apart as a special Sunday. Be here and then also invite your friends uh, to be a part of this as well. It'll be fun. All right, the paradigm. So where we left off before last week, we left off talking about, um, it's been a lot of action, okay? It's been a lot of action. So we talked about how Israel, the, the plagues afflicted the Egyptians and the Israelites um, were finally, it culminated with the death of the firstborn and the Israelites were set free by the Egyptians. They began their journey into the desert. They crossed over the Red Sea and in the Red Sea is when Egypt finally lost its hold on Israel. They were, the Egyptians were drowned in the Red Sea. And then two weeks ago, um, Pastor Mike from Hope Westside came and talked about those first tenuous steps of freedom for Israel. They are no longer constituted by their relationship, their toxic relationship with Egypt. They are now still avads. We talked about that. That's the Hebrew word, which means a servant. They are still servants but they are now servants to their creator who treats them not like slaves, but like children, all right? So Mike talked about those first steps of freedom and how tenuous they are and, um, and, and how hard they were and how, how Israel is not sure what's going on and trying to make sense of things. And today we're in Exodus 18, Exodus 18. All right, so we're just gonna jump right to it. We're gonna put the, uh, the text up here, or if you have your Bibles or smartphones, uh, turn to Exodus 18. And, and this is how it reads. I had my Bible turned to Genesis 18. We're not gonna read Genesis 18. Read Exodus. All right, here we go. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, let me just pause right there real quick, just in case. He was, he was uh, around in the story earlier. I don't know if I mentioned him. So when Moses fled from Egypt after killing an Egyptian, he settled in the land of Midian and he ended up marrying a Midianite, a Midianite woman. And Jethro, who was the priest of Midian, became his father-in-law. So now, now you understand who this character is when he comes back into the scene. All right, 
Jethro, priest of Midian, father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife, Zipporah, his father-in-law, Jethro, received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have become an alien in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer, for he said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the desert, where he was camped near the mountain of God. And Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships that they had met along the way, how the Lord had saved them. Now Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. And he said, praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people. And they stood around him from morning till evening. Now when his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what, this, what is this you were doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them, inform them, of, them of God's decrees and laws. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you're doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it, handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them the decrees and laws and show them the way to live and the duties they are to perform. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all those people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way and Jethro returned to his own country. Cool. So chapter 18. Isn't that just like an incredibly boring chapter? Right? I know you were thinking it. It is mundane. It is so boring. I can't count. I, I wanted to count, but I didn't. How many times Jethro's referred to as just father-in-law, father-in-law, father-in-law. Like NIV, come on. It's a boring passage. And it slows down the action of the story tremendously. Like I just recounted. Exodus 1 through 17 is some high action, high octane stuff. There are 10 plagues afflicted on Egypt. Uh, the Israelites leave the land. Hundreds of thousands of people leave a civilization. They cross through a Red Sea. The sea um, overpowers the Egyptians and drowns them. And then most notably, in the last two chapters, as they're taking their first steps of freedom, there's bread that falls from heaven. The Israelites are led by a pillar of fire and pillar of cloud. There's water that gushes from a rock. And though we didn't talk about it, the story that directly precedes chapter 18 is the battle against the Amalekites. And you may have heard of it. Um, the way it works is Israel and the Amalekites are battling and Moses is sitting on a mountain and he has his hands in the air. And when his hands are in the air, uh, Israel wins the battle. When his hands get tired and they start falling, the Amalekites start winning. I'm pretty sure that's where T-Pain got his song from. Just, they stay there, all right? So his two friends, Aaron and Hur, stood there beside him and kept his hands in the air, and Israel won the battle. That directly precedes chapter 18. 
And then we get here and Jethro returns and it's so boring. It just slows down the action. And for an author with a penchant for brevity, notice these are high action scenes that the author tells really quickly. It begs the question, why include such a seemingly non-essential and boring chapter? A chapter that deals with right governance, right? With philosophies of governance. How is Israel to govern herself now that she's a free people? How is she to govern herself? And its placement is key because next week, what we're gonna talk about in Exodus 19 and 20 is the gift of the law. Uh, Maybe whether you're a Christian or not, you might've heard of the 10 commandments. So that's coming next week. Uh, A very, very important moment in Israel's history. And so you have these incredible mountains of God's uh, acting on behalf of Israel and saving them from the hands of the Egyptians and doing these miraculous things. And then you have another incredible moment where God speaks to Moses and he gives uh, his law, which we're gonna talk about just a little preview. Law is probably not the best way to term it because for us, uh, law connotes this idea of like cold institutional rules. For Israel, it's more like a, a way of life. It's something that's beautiful, it's a precious gift. But we have God giving this to Israel. And in between this, we have Jethro speaking with Moses. And I think that it's, that it's placement right before the giving of the law is what is key. And what it tells us is something about God and about Israel and about this story. So I have two important notes that I think are pulled out of chapter 18. And the first one is simply this. God is not an ethnocentric God. Israel is not an ethnocentric people. And this story is not an ethnocentric story. Now keep in mind an obvious point. Jethro is a Midianite and he's the father-in-law of Moses, which means Moses is in an interracial marriage, which is interesting. But when Jethro returns to Moses, Notice what he says. Notice this passage, Exodus 18. Jethro says, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. As Peter Enns points out, I think the, one of the reasons this passage is included is because even at this stage of Israel's infancy, God's reach is broader than simply saving Israel. This is one of the key elements of the story of the paradigm. When God came to Abraham in Genesis, he said, you will be a father of many nations. He changes Abram's name to Abraham. He says, your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. God's election of Israel was never to be just for Israel. It was always to be, God chose Israel for the sake of the nations. God chose Israel for the sake of the world. God's reach, even at this infant stage of Israel's history, was broader than this one people. And notice, I don't know if you picked it up, Jethro offers the sacrifices. Now, why is that incredible? Well, because if you remember from the plague narratives, when Moses keeps going to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, why? What is the reason he gives Pharaoh? He petitions for their release so that they may offer sacrifices to God in the desert. And the first example we get of sacrifices being offered to to God, to Israel's God, is not from an Israelite. It's from a Midianite. It's from a Midianite. It's It's as if God is saying, I choose you, Israel, but the whole world is going to confess that you are my people and I am your God. This is not an ethnocentric story. And if you need further proof, God counsels Moses through Jethro. Examples, Exodus 18, 19. Listen to me. I will give you counsel and God be with you. 
Exodus 18, 23, he goes, if you do this and God so commands you, you and these people will be able to endure and all these people will go to their home in peace. Some translations say, and if God so commands you. Others sort of interpret it just as, and God commands it, almost as if to say, if you do this, and just so you know, God commands you to do so, you'll be able to stand this whole people with you. Now the question is, why did God have to reveal this through Jethro? Why not through Moses? Moses is the mediator. God's about to reveal his glory before Moses in a way that no one else will receive that. Why did he do it through Jethro? And especially right before the gift of the law, I think my theory is that it's reminding Israel of their election, that they are chosen as the special people of God, not for their own sakes, but for the sakes of all nations. Or as Christopher Wright puts it, the particularism of Israel's history is for a universal goal. The paradox is that precisely through the narrowing down of his redemptive work to the unique particularity of a single people, Israel, and then the single man, Jesus, God opened the way to the universalizing of his redemptive grace to all nations. This is the paradox of the paradigm. Say that one, right? The paradox of the paradigm is this, is that God chooses one and works through one for the sake of all. God chooses one for the sake of all. And this is something that the church in America, we've forgotten for a bit. And the reason why we've forgotten this is because of a word called supersessionism. And the way that, what that means essentially is that our theology is developed such that we think that God has replaced Israel with the church. That Israel is no longer God's people and now the church is. That's not true and that's not the way Paul sees it. This is one story and it starts with Israel and it continues with Israel. And as Paul says, we are grafted onto this story. We are added into the family that is expanded. But make no mistake, it was through one for the sake of all. It was through one for the sake of all. And amazingly, a couple thousand years later, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah will write this. He will prophesy this. He will say, in that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. And when they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and a defender and he will rescue them. So the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And in that day, they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings. They will make vows to the Lord and keep them. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. He will strike them and heal them. And then they will turn to the Lord and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. Friends, God is leading a reclamation project for all the earth. All nations are his. And all nations, even Egypt, even the former oppressors, will one day have an altar in the middle of their lands confessing the God of Israel. Now this first point has a particular resonance with us in this past week, does it not? Has a particular resonance, especially when we consider the question, okay, well, what is the church's response to racism and violence? Because as you can already see, racism is already a denial of the paradigm. It's already a denial of the story, but what is the church's response? Now, before I get to that, I kind of want to set the context. And usually uh, I don't talk too much about American politics not because I don't think they're important. The reason being is because I think the kingdom of God entails its own politics and a politics so overwhelming that if we talk about that over and over and over and so let it fill us and transform us, hopefully then when we step out into the world of other politics, we'll know where, where we stand or we know, at least we'll have a clue of which way to walk. So that's the reason why. But for the sake of answering this question of what is the church's response to racism and violence, I wanna set the scene, I wanna set the context. And really, this comes from an article uh, that came out in uh, The Atlantic in April of this past year. It's called Breaking Faith, Breaking Faith. Uh, I encourage you to read the article, it was incredibly illuminating. And the idea it was looking at was the secularization thesis. And some of you may be aware, the secularization thesis is this, um, that America is becoming a less religious country, 
or any nation. And the less religious a nation becomes, the more tolerant it should become. But what it's found is the exact opposite has happened. That America is becoming more secular, that is to say less religious, but instead of becoming more tolerant, it's becoming more divided and more hateful. And it wanted to look at this, this, this number, uh, especially, um, we've heard the statistic thrown out, and again, I should say this, for the sake of having this conversation, as much as possible, um, I would ask you to set your own politics aside and consider this empirically as observations. So whoever you voted for, try to set that aside and let's uh, engage in this for the sake of what the church's response is, okay? Because um, it was looking at this, this idea, the statistic of four out of five white evangelicals uh, voted for, for Donald Trump. And at least in the primaries, this is what it found. And this is really interesting. Look at this. Notre Dame's Jeffrey Lehman noted that in the primaries, Trump does best among evangelicals with one key trait. They don't really go to church. A Pew Research Center poll last March found that Trump trailed Ted Cruz by 15 points among Republicans who attended religious services every week, but he led Cruz by a whopping 27 points among those who did not. So it begs the question of, well, what constitutes yourself as a Christian? Is it just I identify as it? Or are there certain actions I need to put into place? The article goes on to say that when cultural conservatives disengage from organized religion, they tend to redraw the boundaries of identity, de-emphasizing morality and religion, and emphasizing race and nation. Now, before we think that's just an issue on the right, the article makes clear this is happening on the left too. And just as a qualifier, um, because after this week I think it needs to be qualified, and no sense am I drawing moral equivalencies between those fighting for superiority and those fighting for equality, okay? Not drawing any, it's, that's a no-brainer in my brain, in my brain, no-brainer in my brain. But uh, as the article points out that this same trend is happening with the left, if conservative non-attenders fueled Trump's revolt inside the GOP, liberal non-attenders fueled Bernie Sanders' insurgency against Hillary Clinton, while white Democrats who went to religious services at least once a week backed Clinton by 26 points, According to an April 2016 survey, white Democrats who rarely attended services backed Sanders by 13 points. And it's not just a white issue as well. The article goes on to show that African Americans under the age of 30 are three times as likely to eschew a religious affiliation as African Americans over 50. Now this shift is crucial to understanding Black Lives Matter, a millennial-led protest movement whose activists often take a jaundiced view of established African-American religious leaders. Brittany Cooper, who teaches women's and gender studies as well as Africana studies at Rutgers, writes that the black church has been abandoned as the leadership model for this generation. And as Jamal Bryant, a minister at an AME church in Baltimore, told the Atlantic's Emma Green, the difference between the Black Lives Matter movement and the civil rights movement is that the civil rights movement, by and large, was first out of the church. Now, the article also makes the point that correlation is not causation. So they're not claiming causation, but right now what they're noticing is the same trend. That America is becoming more secular, that is to say, less religious. They're not grounded in a religious story. And, and instead, there's a moving to the polls. What you might put it as, there's a becoming more of a revolutionary and less of a reformer. A reformer says, we can take this and we need to fix it, we need to fix it from the inside out. The revolutionary says, let's tear the whole thing down and start over. We need to make sweeping changes. And interestingly, as the article toward the end, it says this, in a move that faintly echoes the way some in the alt-right have traded Christianity for religious traditions rooted in pagan Europe. Colors, uh, who is part of the Black Lives Matter movement, has embraced the Nigerian religion of Ifa. To be sure, her mo motivations are diametrically opposed to the alt-rights. Colors wants a spiritual formation on which to challenge white male supremacy. The pagans of the alt-right are looking for a spiritual basis on which to fortify it. But both are seeking religions rooted in racial ancestry and disengaging from Christianity which although profoundly implicated in America's apartheid history, 
has provided some common vocabulary across the color line. I think that's deeply revealing and fascinating. Which then brings, if we've set that context, what of the church? What of the church? There's another great book um, called Destroyer of the Gods by Larry Hurtado. And he examines the first church. And when I say the first church, I mean the first 30 to 100 years after uh, Jesus' ascension. So from 30 AD until like 130 AD. He examines the first church and their, their relationship with the Greco-Roman Empire. Um, what was distinctive about this first Jesus movement? And one of them, for our purposes, which is really um, important, is this. It's what he says. There was still a more unusual, and in the eyes of pagan sophisticates, and just so you know, uh, all Romans, for the most part, were pagans. There was, they were polytheists. There was a multiplicity of gods. That's what they mean by pagans. But in the eyes of pagan sophisticates, there was still a more unusual and outlandish Christian notion. The one true august God who transcended all things and had no need of anything, nevertheless had deigned to create this world and a still more remarkable notion also now actively sought the redemption and reconciliation of individuals. And what was the proffered reason for this remarkable redemptive purpose? God loves the world and humanity. The notion that this God loves the world and humanity may have become subsequently so much a familiar notion that we cannot easily realize how utterly strange, even ridiculous it was in the Roman era. Friends, the gods of the Greco-Roman Empire were capricious gods. They were, as, as Hurtado will say, kindly disposed to people. Maybe, sometimes, and it needs to be pointed out, they were kindly disposed, not to all people, but to the people of the city where they had power. So Artemis was the god of Ephesus. She might be kindly disposed to Ephesians, but not to Corinthians. She doesn't care about the Corinthians. So each of the gods don't love, but might be kindly disposed toward their region's people. The Christians, on the other hand, come out and say, no, 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 the Christian God doesn't just, isn't just kindly disposed toward people. He agape-o, agape's the word, which is used so infrequently in pagan texts in that time. Agape describes a love that is not just a kind disposition, but is sacrificial. Agape love is I care for you and your life so much, I'm willing to sacrifice my life so that you can live. And to, for that, for the Christians to say that their God was agape love, an agape love willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of you was unthinkable in their day. And not just sacrifice himself for you in a particular region, but for the entire world was absolutely unthinkable. Friends, the gods of the Romans were gods of a particular city, a state, or a town. You might even say they were ethnic deities. They were gods of blood and soil. But not the Christians. Not the Christians. As Hurtado says, from well within the very first couple of decades, the Jesus movement became trans-ethnic in composition. That is, from this early point onward, early Christian religious identity was not tied to one's ethnicity and one's homeland, and it did not involve a connection to any particular ethnic group, which I think to return to Exodus is why it's so important that Exodus 18 comes before Exodus 19. Consider this. Generally, when you look at human history, people settle, they start uh, forming interpersonal relationships, systems, and then after it grows and they multiply and over a couple hundred years, they become a city. Then they figure out rules of governance. Then they figure out their laws, their constitutions. But notice Israel. Israel is gonna be given their law next week. But they're given their law, their way of life before they inhabit the promised land. They're given their law before they even get to the promised land. Generally, people have the land 
and then they're given the law. They figure out a law as a way to live in the land. It's as if God is saying, what makes you Israel, what makes you my people is independent of where you are. It's not dependent on the land. Because, because I've chosen you for the sake of all people. Every land is my land. And if you look at the history of Israel, they have been dispersed and they've been hated wherever they've gone. Is that not testament enough that this God speaks truth, that they are the chosen of God, that we are grafted unto this family? Where even the Christians, where they say in the New Testament, where Jesus goes, as I leave, I'm gonna send my Holy Spirit and I'm going to write God's law on your hearts and your minds and you will be strangers and aliens. In a sense, to be part of the people of God is never to possess the land, in a sense. So then what to do about racism? Well, the first thing, hopefully it's obvious, take the gospel seriously. Take it seriously. If you're here, take it seriously. Examine it fully. If this is the case of what we see happening in the country, and this is the case that our God is trans-ethnic and trans-ethnic agape love, take it seriously. That's the first thing we can do. Bring your friends back to church. And though there are lots of great churches, I humbly submit Hope Brooklyn is one of them. Bring your friends back to church. Take it seriously. Now, the second thing what we can do And this one doesn't come from uh, empirical observations. I I wasn't able to do a full study. This is from my own opinions. Social media has changed in the last 10 years. Uh, I remember I got a Facebook account in 2004 or 2005 as I was going to college. Um, And if you've been on social media for a while, you've noticed the evolution of social media. It's almost become now, it seems like to me, this is my opinion, So if you don't agree, I'd love to have a conversation about it, but it's almost become like a personal online journal, like a dumping ground. Um, Or as one friend, he put it this way, he goes, in the beginning, only a few people had a platform and everyone was listening in. Well, now it's flipped. Everyone has a platform and no one's listening in. So it's become this place, like like a personal journal, which is not a bad thing, okay? Hear me. I'm not, again, I'm not a Luddite. I'm not condemning it. But I'm saying, let's, let's understand what's going on. So I'm not saying that when Charlottesville happens, we need to stay quiet on social media. I'm saying the opposite. We do need to post. I am saying we need to recognize what it is and we need to express a collective voice because it is a forum that is open for that. But I am saying this as well. I've yet to see someone's opinions fundamentally changed based on conversations they've had on social media. And for the Christians, we are after fundamental life change. That's it. So here's my challenge for all of us, for all of us. The next time someone posts something, which you disagree with, instead of commenting, send a direct message. And if they live in New York, say, hey, can we grab coffee? And I just wanna listen. Can we meet face-to-face at the table? I just want to listen. Or if they don't live in New York, say, can we talk on the phone? Can we have a conversation? And if you don't have anyone on your social media feed that differs in their opinions from you, that's step one. That's step one. I referenced this article um, a while ago, but it's worth returning to. It's from the Washington Post called The White Flight of Derek Black. Uh, Derek Black, uh, he's the son of Don Black. Don Black uh, is a white supremacist and the founder of Stormfront, uh, which is a a white supremacist website. From a young age, Derek Black was indoctrinated into this this ideology and became a white supremacist, became, um, was really very much groomed to take over um, the movement in some capacity. He went to college. He went to a school in Florida um, and he hid that part of himself. But somehow, someone found a picture of him and outed him on the community digital platform and the university just absolutely turned on him. And people said mean, very, very mean things. People said tame things. People turned on him and he sort of retreated. Except for one person, a student named Matthew. 
who was Jewish, interestingly enough. And Matthew was holding Shabbat dinners on Friday nights with his friends. And he invited Derek to come to a dinner. And Derek accepted because he had no friends. Now, the rest of Matthew's friends for the first one decided not to come because they didn't want to be associated or be around this. And by their own admission, the first one was incredibly awkward. But he kept inviting him back, and Derek kept coming. And then Matthew's friends also kept coming, and they became friends, and they had conversations. And sooner, and then over time, they became to have friends about their perspectives, and they shared articles. Long story short, Derek Black renounced white supremacy and is no longer part of that movement. Hate cannot drive out hate, friends. Anger, even justifiable anger, cannot drive out hate. Only love can. It's the message of Israel. It's the message of Jesus. It's the message of the church. It's the message of the paradigm. Bring back to the table. As it seems like in America, at least, those are moving further and further away from one another. Perhaps the church's answer is to set the table and to invite everyone to it, perhaps. And then here's the last thing I would say. So take the gospel seriously. Um, engage in conversations outside of social media. And the last thing I would say is this, and it comes from a book. Um, I know I'm giving you all lots of resources today. <laughs> but it comes from a book called Divided by Faith by Christian Smith, uh, which I wasn't able to completely reference because I lent it to my mom and my mom's still reading it. Mom, if you're listening, totally finish, but when you're ready, can I get it back, please? Um, and one of the basic premises, it was, a, it was a, an empirical observation of white uh, and black evangelicalism and Christianity in the country. And one of the basic uh, premises, what it found is that overwhelmingly, White evangelicals, when they're asked to locate racism, they located racism in individuals. Black evangelicals located racism in systems, which I think is also very revealing. Mainly because as I consider that, individuals and systems, it's kind of a chicken or the egg type thing, right? Like what came first? Individuals, I've yet to meet individuals that don't comprise systems, and I've yet to meet systems that aren't comprised by individuals. Like it's just, they, they cycle. And as I examine that, what I find is there might be something even deeper still. There might be something even deeper still than both individuals and systems. And that might be a story. A story, which is why we say at Hope Brooklyn, we are a community of the story. Because what I've found is that the stories that we tell, the stories that are told to us, shape us shape the ways we think, shape the ways we engage in systems and in the world. The stories we tell provide the intelligibility for our systems. And so here's what I wanna suggest, and there are lots of different options, but just, just one. When I look at the details surrounding the death of Philando Castile, Evidently, Philando Castile inspired such fear in the officer who stopped him and, and, and his heart, even as he was narrating that he had a legal firearm, um, inspired such fear that the officer shot him seven times with his four-year-old daughter in the backseat. What kind of fear is that? And the question I ask is, what kind of story has the officer been told that would create such a reaction? In comparison, last week in Charlottesville, we had, um, sorry, we had white protesters with tiki torches, um, with, with shields, um, with pepper spray, shouting hateful vulgarities and evidently, the, the American story was such that it did not inspire the same fear. Now, I'm not condemning police. My grandfather was a police officer. 
Again, hopefully if we, we just talked about the table is open for all type thing, you know where I stand on that. Um, but I am asking, what if there's a story that might be racist in undertones? What if there's a story that gives rise to the responses in the systems where we are? And I dare say if you start examining at least this example, this comparison is not an anomaly. And it might demonstrate a systemic issue which has been created by a racist narrative which finds its genesis on page one of America's story. So the third thing I would suggest, in the industries where you're involved, because obviously we can't take stock of everything, but with industries where you're involved, start probing around, start looking, start asking for questions, start looking for the stories that might give rise to the systems, and just see what you find. That's all I'm saying, see what you find. And the last thing I would say is, if there's anyone in this room who disagrees with everything I'm saying, please, please, please do not leave the table. Your voice is so needed. Come to me, talk with me. I wanna grab coffee and I promise you, I just wanna listen. I wanna hear your perspective. I wanna hear your thoughts. Um, truly listen. Don't leave the table. Because notice, Jethro challenged Moses' systems while having a meal together too. So please stay at the table. That was the first point about Exodus 18. I got one more, guys. I got one more. So the second important point I see about Exodus 18 is this. Um, why, is, why is it there? Because God is creating a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Although the whole earth is mine, he says, you will be for me, Israel, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Jethro observed Moses' form of leadership and says it's not good. What you're doing is not good. The phrase he uses is lotav, which is used twice in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. Lotav. Do you know the only other time you see uh, that phrase, lotav? It's in Genesis 2, when God looks at Adam and says, it's not good for man to be alone. It's as if um, the Hebrew Bible is saying that we cannot live alone and we cannot lead alone. The word for life is chayim. Chayim is in the pluralized form. Life is essentially shared. And for Christians, as the stories progress, we realize that we are created by one God, one God who is in one substance, but in three beautifully distinct and overlapping and dancing persons. In a sense, God in his very nature is community. So what he's creating in his people is a shared life. So the whole idea of rugged individualism, of self-reliance, God would say, I didn't create you to be that way. I didn't create you to be self-reliant. I created you to be very dependent on me and on one another. And so Jethro says, what you're doing is not good. You'll surely wear yourself out, both you and these people with you, for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. What task? the task of creating a people with a fundamentally different nature and a fundamentally different societal structure than the rest of the surrounding nations. God is creating not a monarchy, but a theocracy. Notice the language, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Kingdom is very much a earthly political idea, but a kingdom of priests, which is a divine idea. A holy, a divine idea, a sacred idea, a holy nation. It's an earthly idea. What is God saying? God is saying, I'm creating a people where the heavens and the earth unite again. I'm telling you the, the final page of the story. I'm gonna return and the entire world will be mine and the heavens and all that I am, pure goodness, pure joy, pure grace, pure forgiveness, pure truth, will be perfectly united with you and the earth and all that you are. That's what he's after. And it's not good for you, Moses, because your task is to make your role dispensable or at least very limited. It's not good for you to take all this on. So teach them the statutes and the instructions of God, make known to them the way they are to go and things they are to do. Because the plan is for you not to arbitrate the law to these people. The plan is for them to know my ways so fully. They don't need an arbitrator. 
you're sort of making yourself dispensable. Guys, I'll know I've done my job well when I don't have to show up and teach anymore because you will fully inhabit, fully indwell the word of God. That's just so fascinating because the paradigm requires a mediator at first. It requires someone to communicate God's ways, God's life to the people. But eventually we're working to a place where the mediator is expendable (laughs) or the point where Jesus goes, I have to leave and I will send my spirit and my spirit will draw you into all truth and all righteousness. (laughs) What does that mean practically? Well, one thing it means is this. I remember my friend who's a pastor of a church told the story um, that it was before service and someone new showed up. And one of the, the leaders in the church comes over to him and goes, hey, someone new's over there. You should go say hi. And he goes, no, you go say hi. <laughs> what does this mean? It means you're Hope Brooklyn. You're Hope Brooklyn. You know the pillars. You know the calling. You know the vision. Embody it. Embody it fully. The New Testament description of church is not a hierarchy. It's one where all bring together different gifts, different skills, different passions, and they comprise through the glue of the Holy Spirit, they comprise one body, Jesus's body. And so it's not good for you, Moses, and it's not good for the people, because if you do the job of thinking for them, how will they ever know me? So if the goal is a place where heaven and earth are one, then we're eventually working toward a place where all are equally priests and all are equally kings and all are equally queens and all are equally servants and all are equally gardeners and all are equally jesters and all are equally like God. The people and the leaders, the people and the other nations where the Midianites worship the Lord right beside Israel, where Egypt has a monument right in the middle of their land saying this is to the Lord. This has tremendous weight for Hope Brooklyn. Tremendous weight. Because the paradigm, this story, is not an ethnocentric story. And the love it describes is a love that's not easily attributed to other gods. That love, that that form of sacrificial trans-ethnic love is exactly what should so indwell us that it inspires our way forward as a community. So what is that? What does that mean? What does that mean? That's not for me to necessarily answer. It's for us to answer. It's for us to answer. So I want to invite the worship team back up. I want to close with this. Paul in Ephesians 2, he talks about the church in Ephesus and he talks about its new constitution, its new composition, that it's a people um, where, because the first Christians were Jewish. They were Jewish who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But very early on, God seemed to go to non-Jewish Gentiles and bring them into the family, graft them onto Israel's story. And there was obviously a lot of friction because there was a lot of animosity over the years of trying to understand what does this mean? Uh, what ethically, how does this constitute us? Do we have to um, live the same way? How do we do this? And Paul says this in Ephesians 2. He goes, the Messiah, the Messiah has made things up between us so that we're now together on this, both non-Jewish outsiders and Jewish insiders. He tore down the wall we used to keep each other at a distance. He repealed the law code that had become so clogged with fine print and footnotes that it hindered more than it helped. And then he started over. Instead of continuing with two groups of people separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion, he created a new kind of human being, a fresh start for everybody. Christ brought us together through his death on the cross. The cross got us to embrace, and that was the end of the hostility. Christ came and preached peace to you outsiders and peace to us insiders. He treated us as equals and so made us equals. Through him, we both share the same spirit and have equal access to the Father. And the paradigm, the reality we're working toward is one where all walls of hostility have been broken down. Where all humans created by God, beloved by God, the death of Christ for each and every human being, each and every nation, where all have finally reached the point with hands upturned, they look and they say, you alone are God. You alone are good. And as Liz said, if we know this of God, 
how can we treat our brother and our sister any differently? The God who came and died for his enemies, how can we do any different? Will you pray with me? Father, will you allow the reality of this story to sink deeply into our bones, bones which you have brought back to life? That you are a God who condemns no one. You are a God who invites everyone to your table. And yes, in the process of coming to your table, we have to drop all our weapons, anything we might use to defend ourselves against one another or defend ourselves against you. But you promise that at the table, you will fill us up with new bread and new wine. You will fill us up with the fullness of love. And you've called your people to be agents of that love, to be agents of that reconciliation, to step to step truthfully into the world which does not acknowledge you or acknowledges you hazily in places and to call out the evil that's there but to not stop at calling out the evil but to also invite to the table. Give us courage to see the entire world as our family, as you do, as you're working toward Only you can do it. Only your spirit has the power to do it. But would you so empower Hope Brooklyn, Lord, to be that type of community? Make us a place of invitation. Make us a place of deep, overwhelming love. Cast our eyes to your cross, Jesus, as Paul did. If we're gonna take any steps toward reconciliation, it starts by examining the sacrifice of God on the cross. Jesus, do your work. It's only yours to be done. We just give you permission to work fully through us. We love you, Lord. Have your way. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.